Once I started fly casting, every time I caught a fish on anything but a fly rod, I just felt like I had missed an opportunity to have caught that fish on a fly rod. And, and, I, and I'm sitting there, could somebody please put a rod in the water? I like to think that fly fishing saved my life. And uh, fly fishing became a passion in which I could, I could become completely absorbed. And it really helped me through a tough time. And I'll, I'll always appreciate that about fly fishing. Chief Justice and I sat there, whoop, there's a flag up. We both run to the flag, run to the trap, and I go, oh, you you take it. You, it's probably some little shove or something. She pulls in the biggest bass of the day. Welcome to Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Michael Jones. Today, I have invited my close friend, Tom Ackerman, to join me to learn more about our special guest, Harvey Wheeler. Thank you for joining me, Tom. Thanks, Mike. Hi, I'm Tom Ackerman co-host on today's Flyline podcast. I've had the privilege and good fortune of knowing and working with Harvey Wheeler for over 30 years, both as a main guide and as an instructor in the L.O.B. Fly Fishing School. Harvey's the very best. Just ask anyone that spent time with him on the water or in the classroom. He's that rare individual that combines credibility with likability. He knows his stuff and he's a joy to be with. Whether guiding for stripers on the Lower Kennebec or teaching folks the finer points of fly fishing in the Yellow Bean Fly Fishing Schools, Harvey has always been the consummate professional. In over 40 years as a main guide, he's demonstrated uncommon knowledge, good judgment, and quick wit. He's also a gifted storyteller with an endless repertoire of yarns and good jokes. Everything you come to expect from a top-notch main guide. Harvey truly is a main treasure, and those fortunate enough to have spent time with him are richer for it. In a crowded field of highly talented Maine guides living today, Harvey, the Maven Wheeler, is the finest kind. Harvey, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. I feel like I'm sitting with two friends because I'm sitting with two friends. <laughs> Harvey, really glad that you could join Mike and me today. Wonderful. So, Harvey, let's go back to the very beginning. What was your, where did you grow up? And then what were some of your earliest influences that got you going with fishing? Well, I grew up, believe it or not, on a farm in Portland, Maine, on Outer Washington Avenue. And, and the farm was owned by my grandparents. So my family had one half of it, and my grandparents had the other half. Across the street was a dairy farm down Toy Allen Avenue extension was a sheep farm toward Falmouth was a turkey farm where we got our uh, manure to, for our garden and uh, we used to t take the uh, tractor down there and load up and come back and fertilize the the uh, vegetables primarily we grew apples oh, wow. and um, sold apples and cider in the fall and uh, mostly strawberries in the summer and I was a little boy sitting on the porch out front as people would stop, and I would take their 35 cents for a half of half a gallon of cider. And you were doing this as a young man? Yeah. What were your, some of your earliest fishing memories? Well, the earliest was with my grandfather and my dad and my uncle. 
we would troll and Sebago Lake. That was the, my introduction to fishing. And there wasn't much catching, but for some reason, it, it just enthralled me. And then one day, I saw a fly rod in, in the shed, and I didn't even know how to do it. I took it out in, one, in the little rowboat, because I used to roll my grandfather around trolling. And uh, I whipped that thing back and forth up in the middle of Sebago Lake, far, as far as I could roll. Yes. And a salmon came up and grabbed the fly. Oh. I was 10 years old. And you were hooked. And then things changed a little bit after that. You sure you were, you were 10, Harvey? I was 10 years old at the wow. time. Isn't that great? Wow. Yeah. wow. So that was my <laughs> self-imposed introduction to uh, fly fishing. And I'm sure it was ugly to see it, but it grabbed my heart some, for some reason. Sa same story for me. Uh, I was not taught how to fly fish. I, I taught myself. Right. And boy, I'll tell you, it was a struggle <clears throat> until I was finally shown the first hundred tricks. Mm -hmm. And that's all fly fishing is. It's just right. a bunch of tricks, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And as guides, all three of us, right? We were blessed with having that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm not that smart. It just happens to be yeah. I have a lot of experience doing it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Guys that are self-taught have a fool for a teacher. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you get that right. Yeah. Well, how, how, when was that, Dave? How long ago? Well, I mean, that would have been 1955 since I was born in 45. Right. right. Okay. So, so um, my great-grandfather in 1935 built a boathouse on Harmon's Beach on Sebago mm -hmm. Lake. Mm -hmm. There were no roads to the camp. Mm -hmm. And my dad helped float the uh, lumber down the beach to, to build that <laughs> boathouse. And little by little, that boathouse became our camp, summer camp. Yep. We basically bolted a kitchen on one end and a porch on the other end. Mm -hmm. And that's where we uh, ended up spending the summers up there at Hannah's Beach and Sebago. Well, I was curious about when it was because I worked on Sebago for a few years during those really slow years. And after the DDT and so forth, and the bottom fell out of the salmon fishing there. Sounds like you lived through it. Yep. We would go out there and troll in the uh, summertime, usually three to five colors of lead line and a flatfish. And that's the, the few salmon that we did catch, we caught that way. We also caught doing the same thing. We would catch the occasional white perch. And when I would fish at night, I would catch eels. And every once every summer, the, the, the whole group of families on the beach would go to the bog behind the beach and fish for hornpout. Yes. And we would fill up buckets full of these hornpout. Yeah. And I'd be out on a rock with my grandfather with a hand line catching hornpout. Harvey, tell me, great memories. I'm always fascinated with eel fishermen. How do you catch an eel? <laughs> How did you catch an eel? Well, there were, I mean, sometimes it wasn't on purpose, but I had... These Franco-American families loved eels. Oh, yeah. And they, when I went out at night with, with a hand line and multiple hooks and big night crawlers, they couldn't wait for me to bring some eels to them. But most of the eels that we caught were by accident when we were smelt fishing with hand lines mm -hmm. out in smelt holes. And certain, you'd get cross-references, drop an anchor mm -hmm. in that particular spot, and we would catch these Pretty good-sized jack smelts. Oh, wow. In fact, Jordan's store up on Mason's right. Beach, they have a big smelt mounted on the wall there. 
Yeah, but oftentimes we would catch eels by accident when we were out there trying to catch smelts. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you, you would catch a salmon by accident also. But the intent then was to catch smelts. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm just sitting here thinking, knowing what I know about you and your passion for Atlantic salmon, what a journey it must have been to go from eels <laughs> to Atlantic salmon. Yeah, oh yeah. Take us down that road. Well, I mean, think about the evolution of that from trolling to fly casting. I mean, it's hard to put the pieces together, but John Mayo was the instigator to get me into uh, fly fishing for Atlantic salmon. I was coaching his son at Falmouth High School. He, he was part of my swim team, and uh, he kind of took a shine to me, and once he started talking about Atlantic salmon, my antenna perked up. Um, next thing I know, he and I were on our way to the Narragawagas River to fish the cable pool, which we did many, many, many times. And that's where I got the, the passion for that. That was rotation fishing, the cable pool. That was Gerard in the rack. At the cable pool, there was a rack there. It was like going to the barber shop. Each uh, slot on the rack had a number. So if you were the first one there, maybe 4 a.m., 4.30, you would put your rod in slot number one and uh, so on down the line. And when it was light enough to start fishing, rod number one would step up, take a cast, let the fly swing, and take a step down river. Take another cast, let the fly swing, take a step down river. And if you didn't take a step down river, somebody would throw a pebble at you. And uh, that, was, that was my introduction to the formality and the etiquette of salmon fishing. So mm -hmm. I learned how to follow the rules, and, and I met some of the most amazing characters there that uh, some of the local guys that lived in that area, but many uh, fellows that followed Atlantic salmon all the way up into the maritime provinces, but the Narragawagas would be their first stop along the way. Right. Did yeah. you ever catch a fish on that cable pool? Well, I went four years before I hooked one there. And one day, when everybody else was sleeping or taking a break, when the salmon were not supposed to be coming to the surface, I stepped up with my true temper fly rod. I had an eyelet stuck into the end of the fly line and a tied the leader on with a granny knot, and I had a big trout dry fly on there, and I put it out there, and I didn't lay the line down very straight. It was all kinds of serpentine patterns there. And for some reason, about a 10-pound salmon came up in the middle of all that fly line and took the fly and settled down. And after stripping maybe seven or eight times, everything came tight. <laughs> and... That, that fish went all over the cable pool, and eventually it came off. And I was walking back to the car, and there was an old fellow there named George Joy, who was a local fellow. And I expected him to say something to make me feel a little bit better about losing my first Atlantic salmon that I'd had on the line. So I was going by George, and he looked up at me, and he said, 11 minutes to 11, you hooked him. Seven minutes to eleven, you lost him. And that's all he said to me. What? Not another thing. 
Mm-hmm. Welcome to salmon fishing. Just the data. That's it. Oh, that's that's <laughs> just amazing. The, just the data. Wow. But and I remember there was a peanut gallery there. Of oh, my God. Watch. I only fished the cable pool once. Oh and I remember God. getting halfway down through. I was right in front of the bench where all the locals sat. And I, and I was nervous anyhow. And I wasn't that good of a caster. I drove that forward cast. And I heard the fly hit me right between the shoulder blades and drive into my jacket. And I just wanted to crawl underneath a rod. I said, is there a quicker way out of here than the way I came in? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so there's a there's a, a public bench there? Yeah. So then I mean, people are not rotating. They're just watching. Right. And they're not fishing. There's got to, you got to do yeah. something. And some people would show up just to watch and right. just to, to participate in the camaraderie of it. It was it was incredible. It, right. the, the, just the culture there was unbelievable. For me, I was introduced to tying Atlantic salmon flies before I actually went to Bangor and Triform. And I need an excuse to fish these flies because the flies for Atlantic salmon are some of the most beautiful flies you'll ever see. I just need an excuse to fish the Cobra and Special and the Undertaker and all those flies and butterfly you and I were talking about recently, Tom. Uh, But before the podcast can continue any further, I do want to get something out of the way because you're going to hear the name Maven pop up. Um, and I heard when Tom and, and Harvey and I fished the springtime, you must have called him Maven all day long. I don't know his real name. Yeah, Har- Harvey Wheeler. <laughs> Harvey Wheeler. Yeah. So who, can one of you tell me how the name came about? Who gave you the first, who first called you Maven and why? Well, th- this story begins with Brock Epfel. Oh, yes. Who was the gentleman that hired me to spearhead their Atlantic Salmon School program. And I can thank a a gentleman named Scott Sanford, who was a student of mine when I was teaching at Falmouth and also on my track team, was a a state champion long jumper, by the way. And uh, Scott overheard Brock Apfel saying something about a salmon school and needing an instructor. And Scott knew me, Mm -hmm. knew what I was all about, and mentioned my name. And so I got an interview with Brock Apfel. The interview shows what a great negotiator I am because he explained to me what he wanted me to do, and he he was going to send me up to Labrador for a week to scout out the area, the upper Eagle River, and um, then he was going to send up 12 students and two more instructors, and we were supposed to teach these people how to fish for Atlantic Sam. And so... Everything was going fine, and Brock obviously uh, felt pretty comfortable with me and said he was he would like to uh, hire me to do this, and he was going to pay me $200 a day to do this. And I said to him, I'm going to get paid? <laughs> <laughs> Brock, I Brock, swear to God. For the, for the I had no clue. I said, I get money as well as, as this experience? Where do I sign? Yeah. So Brock <laughs> Hatfield, uh ran LLB. Correct? Ran the fly fishing school. Ran the fly fishing school, Tom. Thank you. Yeah, I know Brad Burns has talked about uh, rock in the past. Yeah. So I got the job. What year was that? That was 1986. Okay. Yeah. So one of the students was a writer for Sports Illustrated, and he was comped for the trip in exchange for writing an article about the trip. So in the article featuring Barry Sanders on the cover, he went on and on about the trip, and he referred to me as the L.L. Bean Salmon Maven in the article. That's it. So that's where it came from. I had no idea what a maven was, and the guys at Beans would not let me live that down. So 
I became the Maven. I have a license for Maven. My first guideboat was Maven's Haven. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Go on. Well, that explains it all. It does. Um, what is a Maven? I mean, you must have researched it. Well, when I found out that I was a Maven, I looked it up. And it wasn't, I guess, in a regular dictionary, but I, I heard that it's a Yiddish term, meaning some kind of expert. It, you could be a maven at this or a maven at that. So right. Yes. That's that's, I, apparently, that's what it is. Right. Well, I think <laughs> it's a fitting name. I think so. <laughs> so they hung you on that, and, yeah. and it stuck. With great, great story about maven. Is that how you were introduced to him, too, Tom? I know I knew him as Harvey Wheeler, but I'll tell you, Harvey, you were kind of bigger than life for me. I remember hearing about you from both Scott Sanford, who I know real well, we worked together at Bean for 20 years, and John Mayo, who I worked with on the fishing department floor at LL Bean as well. And so John would talk about you, Scott would talk about you, and I and I remember meeting you and not being disappointed. I just remember, but you you were really uh, linked to salmon fishing in my mind, Atlantic salmon fishing. That's what I knew you as, was the salmon maiden. Yeah. Well, the, to me, when... Even to this day, when I go Atlantic salmon fishing, it's a completely different feeling that I get inside, almost a spiritual thing. And do I expect to catch one? No, but the whole experience uh, absolutely just grabs me. When I met Father Smith years ago, before I really started Atlantic salmon fishing, we used to do fish the mouth of the Songo River in April. That's when... I was criticized by my peers for hanging around old guys. <laughs> it was Father Smith smoking his pipe, John Mayo smoking his pipe, Dr. Babson and his pipe, and Clayton Cronkite and his pipe. They were all Atlantic salmon fishermen, all of them, and the stories that they would tell. And I would sit there as the young guy doing all the grunt work. That was kind of a dream that maybe someday I'd be part of that. Mm -hmm. But we had some really good landlocked salmon fishing at the mouth of the Songo, which eventually blossomed into me being tutored by some of the most incredible elderly men that taught me not just how to cast, and but the, the etiquette of it right. and the appreciation for it and the conservation component to it, you know, s stuff that has stuck with me for forever. The unfortunate thing is all of those f fellows, all those pipe-smoking fellows, all passed away from lung disease or heart disease, mm -hmm. which is a, yeah. an absolute shame. It was a lifestyle then, though. Yeah. But they also, I mean, there is something different about an Atlantic salmon fisherman. Oh, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. But you were discipled by Father Smith, John Mayo, and the rest of the apostles. I mean, to, what an amazing, well, was amazing just, introduction. I was so fortunate to, the, to be part of that group, and that was all thanks to John Mayo. Right. Talk a little bit more about John, because I just remember maybe the classiest guy I've, I've ever met. And he taught in the school, and he was your predecessor when it came to teaching about Atlantic salmon fishing. And he did some, some of the most spellbinding talks with flip charts about how to approach the water, how to paint and sweep, how to uh, yeah. cover water in a systematic manner. But I mean, he was just, he would just to command the room. There'd be 30 students in there, you could hear a pin drop because yeah. of his. Well, he was a very mild mannered guy, yeah. very soft spoken man. But whenever he would just sit down and chat about salmon, I mean, Everybody that had any interest at all was spellbound by him. And uh, the, the interesting thing about it is the 
dozens of times, I wouldn't say hundreds, but dozens of times that he and I rode back and forth to the cable pool on the Narragüegas and fished together. He never saw me catch a salmon, and I never saw him catch a salmon. That's now, he we, might be around the corner with a salmon on, mm-hmm. but I, he, we never saw each other. Right. You use a different yardstick to measure success when you go in Atlantic salmon. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and you know that better than anybody. Well, for instance, this year, I was scheduled to go to the Miramichi and the Canes River, which I do every fall. And because of the hurricane, all the salmon went through before my trip. And so Brad Burns emailed me and said, if I were you, I wouldn't bother coming up. Well, I was scheduled to go with Duncan Barnes, who used to be yes, of course. the editor of Outdoor Life magazine. Yes. And uh, he and I and my friend from Connecticut, Nels Jensen, we have been going together for a number of years for four or five days in the first part of October, where we've had really nice opportunities to catch fish up there. So I was very disappointed. And even though the fishing was not going to be any good, I wanted to go. Yeah, you did. And so I tried to talk Duncan into going. And he's, I think, 85 or 86 years old now. So I still hang around older, older guys. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I couldn't talk him into going. And I didn't want to go all along to drive that far. I'm not really good at long-distance driving. Was Brad going to join you, or was he down here or up no, there? No, no, he was still up there. Right, yeah. So I, I could have made it up there, and, and he would have. I think he would have enjoyed having me there. But, but I wasn't going to do it by myself. Right. So I missed out on that. And, you, you know, at my age, you don't have that many opportunities left. But just the, uh, just the overall experience, um, after we fish up there, we sit on the front porch, have an appetizer and adult beverage, and watch the home pool. And one year we were on the, on the porch looking out over Brad's home pool, and we were eating shrimp cocktail. Yeah. And we had another cocktail on the other hand. It wasn't shrimpy. And we would eat the shrimp and toss the exoskeleton over the, the railing onto the lawn. Next thing I know, out from out of the woods comes a raccoon. And he's starting to nibble on these wow. exoskeletons. Next thing we know, he's walking up the stairs. Next thing we know, he's reaching in to get some shrimp cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> He's joining in. <laughs> Great story. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. Yeah, Did you get him a cocktail? <laughs> you got something, Tom. <laughs> you, you know, I, I, I think, I'm talking with, I remember um, John Mayo owned restaurants in Portland, right? Your host restaurants. Right. So and did he take the whole summer off to go fishing? That I couldn't tell you. I know that uh, he had a Thunderbird, and this is long before people were releasing salmon. Back in those days, they would say, how many did you kill? Right. That's the term that they used. The thought of releasing an Atlantic salmon, unless you were personal friends with Lee Wolf, you you weren't releasing one. Right. Um, And he would go to the Miramichi with his Thunderbird, and he would fish with Father Smith, and one of Father Smith's friends, Scoville Graham, whose picture's up on the wall there, in fact, I was with Scoville when I caught my very first salmon up there. And he would come back with a layer of newspaper, a layer of salmon, a layer of ice. Newspaper, oh. salmon, 
and ice. Newspaper, and he would distribute these around the neighborhood. All these, uh, because back then it was mostly grilts and the, the, uh, the netting had changed the dynamics of it so that you didn't get that many adult salmon, but mostly grilts and grilts bigger than the ones I was used to catching that on the, on the Matan River, which were like three pounders, but these were like five or six pounds. Oh, well, I, one of the things that I forgot to ask is that we went from your childhood right launched right into Atlantic salmon, which is like reading the first chapter and going right to chapter 11. Chapter two, though, is you're a teacher by trade. Yeah. Uh, by discipline, I should say. Where did you go to college, Harvey? Went to Bowdoin College, majored in biology. Oh, good. We did too. And I became a biology teacher at the, at the high school level. But I had to take some education courses my first year of teaching okay. to make it legal. Because <laughs> yeah, you have to be certified. Yeah. Yeah, right. And uh, back in those days, I would go in the springtime, I would fish the mouth of the Songo before school. I'd be there fish in the dark. And we would use these quill flies, these turkey quills, yeah. throw them out across the current in total darkness. And it was unbelievable fishing. It was amazing fishing. And uh, once the sun came up, if you didn't have a sinking line, you, you weren't going to catch a fish. So one, one day in April, I was up there, and I had a sinking line. And I was doing pretty well on three to four pound landlocks. Up above me was a fellow who wasn't doing very well. And he would yell down at me, asking me questions such as, what fly are you using? And I'd give him an answer. And what kind of retrieve are you using? And on and on and on. Finally, I says, come on down. And he wanted to, I was releasing my fish. He wanted to take one home. So we got him into a fish, and he thanked me, and he took one, took one fish home. His name was Howard Clifford. Now, that name should ring a bell with people that are into Atlantic salmon because Howard Clifford still holds the American record for Atlantic salmon. 28 pounds, I think one ounce, something wow. like that. Massive thing. So, so he was a sincere fisherman. Well, he was just getting started. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah. that fall, yeah. that same fall, yeah. I was up at the bean store in the old style bean store walking up the creaky stairs yeah, yeah. where they had the glass the fishing department with the glass cabinets and all the fancy reels underneath <clears throat> in walks howard clifford with this massive salmon in his arms in his arms he flops it down on this glass counter and i said howard do you know what you have there he says i've got one big ass salmon i know that <laughs> And as it turned out, it was the biggest salmon ever caught in the United States, and still is. Wow. Um, so I'm guessing the, Penobscot. No. He, he wouldn't divulge where he caught it. Got it. Um, and through the grapevine, I found out that it was, he caught it on the Sheepskit River. Um, not, the, not the reversing falls, because I had fished there, and it wasn't there. It was another pool further out. But... Uh, Howard went from a neophyte to world famous 
in about three months. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's wild. That's wild. So you were, you were, I think where you were going with that too, Harvey, was you were talking about uh, going fishing before school. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I would go up there and, and fish in the dark and get back to Falmouth in time to have my suit and tie on and get ready to teach. Suit and tie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you taught for how many years at Falmouth? 27 years. Okay. So, um, Again, we want to get back to the fishing because that's such a great part of it. But I do want to talk just quickly about how'd you get into coaching? Were you a swimmer yourself? Um, kind of. I when I was in high school, we had a, a little swim team. It didn't amount to much. We had a league called the Triple C Cumberland County Conference, and every fall there'll be one meet, and all of the Triple C teams—Falmouth, Yarmouth, Gorham, Wyndham—would yeah send a few kids to the Portland Boys Club and have a meet and there'd be a champion. And so I learned how to swim the butterfly and I won the Cumberland County Championship in the butterfly. And when I was up at Harmons Beach as a kid, my dad, who used to work for Century Tire and deliver tires through Southern Maine and into New Hampshire, he would bring back these big inner tubes, and I would jump off the porch onto these inner tubes and flip onto the sand. That's how I learned how to be a diver. Oh, wow. So when I, when I went to high school, and, they, I, and I found out that there was a chance to, to dive for, in a contest, I said, I want in on this. That's so awesome. That's, that is cool. <laughs> that is so freaking cool. And that was the beginning of kind of a love affair I had with springboard diving. By the time I got to be a senior, I had had a little bit of coaching from Harold Paulson at the at the uh, Portland Boys Club. So you're still in high school. Yep, and he he taught me some things that I wouldn't even have dared to do on my own. So with his help, I be I was the main high school champion and recruited by Bowden and then I went on there and continued with, with diving. I wasn't really uh, good enough to be a butterfly swimmer at the college level, right. but I did well. And, and I was, I became all American in 1965, got flown out in first, my first trip on an airplane yeah. out to Indiana university to compete yeah. in the nationals and uh, came in 12th in the college division. And, um, uh, they they gave out all American certificates to the top twelve. Wow! So I got the last one. So and I it's right over there. Were you diving off a platform or a diving board? Just a one meter board. And the, and in my junior year, they introduced three meter diving. And Bowden had something I'd never seen before or since. They had a hydraulic diving board. So the the water was only ten feet yeah ten feet deep, but on the wall was a button. You push the button, and the whole platform would go up, push it up, and go up some more, all the way up to, to three meters. Of course, nowadays, you would be arrested if you let somebody dive three meters into 10 feet of water. Yeah. But we were just getting started, so we got a chance to compete on both one and three. But uh, I made it into the top 12 on the one-meter board. That's quite an accomplishment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nationally. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. You know, at the back then they had uh, two divisions: the university division and the college division. Now they have division one, two, and three. Yeah, right. So yeah. the real hot shots are the 
Division One guys. Right. So you went from diving to coaching diving. I did. Yep. And so when I was hired at at Falmouth High School, I was the biology teacher, the track coach, and and the uh, swimming and diving coach. Okay. And eventually, uh, Bowden wanted to hire their first diving coach. They'd never they'd never had one. So Charlie Bott, who was was my coach at Bowden uh, when I was there, I interviewed with him and. He and Sid Watson, the the AD, hired me to become their first diving coach. And uh, one of my first athletes that I recruited was a fellow young man named Frank Marston who went to Deering High School, and I had coached him in a club, in my club team. Very skillful, handsome kid, perfect posture, all the physical tools and tough-as-nails kid. And... uh, with his skill, he made me a pretty good coach, I tell you that, uh, because he went on to become the uh, national champion in his junior year national and, di- and national diver of the year. Wow. And what usually happens with that is that if, if the diver wins the national championship, his coach becomes the coach of the year. So I got the national coach of the year that year as well, wow. <laughs> thanks wow. to Frank Marston. Yeah. Sid Watson's name is decorated in Bowdoin sports history, of course. So you actually knew Sid Watson. Yeah. That's great. What year did you start uh, coaching at Bowdoin? Do you remember when that was, Harvey? Boy, I'd have to count backwards. because Maybe in the 90s, or was it earlier than that? It would have been in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I would say probably right around 1990 Yeah, when I started there. Yeah, I think we're in a great place to take a short break. We're going to talk a little bit about a main history, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk more about your uh, your guiding career and some of the great things that we want to share with the audience. This Fly Line flashback recounts the history of the Bangor Rustic Railway, and in particular, their unique annual travel publication, In the Maine Woods, a guide's book for sportsmen, as recounted in excerpts from the Outdoor Sporting Library. First published in 1900 for the guests riding the railways to Maine's fishing, hunting, and vacation destinations, In the Maine Woods was a comprehensive source of information for the potential sportsmen traveling into Maine by rail. The cover art was always beautiful. Inside, numerous stories chronicled hunting and fishing adventures in specific river drainages and hunting areas. Pictures of fish, game, sporting lodges, and beautiful scenery were present throughout. Numerous maps of lakes, streams, and Bangor and Aroostook lines were provided to help plan for a potential trip. State hunting and fishing regulations for the year were included. The guide also provided the railroad's rates to transport sportsmen and ship their trophy fishing game back home. Finally, advertisements from guides, sporting lodges, and other companies also took up a good portion of the guide. The folks at the Bangor and Aroostook Railroad were true promoters. They knew their customer base and used in the main woods to encourage folks to travel north on their rail cars. Numerous writers contributed stories to the guide, but nary a negative word about the hunting and fishing in northern Maine was mentioned. They worked to create an untarnished image of the Maine woods, one of a forest teeming with trophy fish and game ready to be taken. In addition to their value from a pure entertainment perspective, the in the main woods publication contained plenty of historical value. 
While many accounts of the North Country's fish and game resources were surely exaggerated to help lure customers, pictures don't lie, judging from the pictures of deer, trout, and other critters, and the hunting and fishing history, which were depicted in 57 volumes of In the Maine Woods for over five decades of publication. The In the Maine Woods publications have become quite a collector's item over the years. All of the editions are quite rare, but some are much more rare than others. Sometime in the 1950s, road infrastructure and automobile travel began to take over the transportation monopoly once held by the Bangor and Rustic Railroad. The last version of In the Main Woods was published in 1957 and passenger rail service was discontinued in 1961. It was between this period between 1900 and 1961 that hordes of potential customers throughout the northeastern United States were eager for more information about this vast forest land in the northern Maine and the abundant fish and wildlife that were to be experienced and observed firsthand. And now, back to the second half of our episode. blows my mind that you grew up on a farm in Portland. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you told me that years ago when I, when I asked you when we were guiding what you did, and I was amazed, but Portland, you could have cows and, you yeah. know. Every time I drive by that old farm, I have tears in my eyes because when I was 18, my grandfather died. And, of course, it was very painful to lose my, my mentor in, in so many ways. My grandmother and my grandfather, they had no insurance or anything. Right. They had to, my grandmother had to sell that farm with all the acreage down back. She moved in with her sister. She got $8,000 for the farm and all the land. But now it's all just the housing complex right. down there. Yeah. I think my takeaway from this part of the podcast is all of the things and we've known each other for a long time. All of the things that I learned today that I didn't know that have shaped you into the person that you are today. It's really, it's been really, really yeah, uh, well, fascinating. Everybody has a different background, so it does what it does. Yep, for sure. Harvey, we want to come back to, um, we want to come back to guiding. How did you become a main guide? Well, after uh, I did my one season or one stint as an Atlantic salmon teacher. Um, Rock wanted to take me on to the regular fly fishing school. And after a couple of years, there were some issues with uh, teaching at Grand Lake Stream where the wardens felt that the teachers should have guides licenses. And so it was evident that that's what we were supposed to do. <clears throat> so I got my guides license. I think that was 1986. And then I started guiding out of my uh, 20-foot canoe. And at that time, the uh, striper bonanza was just getting started. The late 80s, early 90s, it was incredible in the lower Kennebec. So I would take my big canoe up there by Goat Island. There was a place you could put in there, which now is no longer available. But I would take clients out in that canoe, and we would fish all around Drumore Bay, catch fish all day long even even on sunny days if you knew where you where you what you were doing you could catch some and then i realized i'm not doing this legally no you're not so i'm breaking the law what what 
The reason I'm telling you is you have to have a salt water, at least a six pack license to be a, to be taking people off for money for stripers. And he is really a freshwater registered main guide. So right. he's right. got to take the next step. So exactly. the next step was to study for my captain's license. And so I took a course in Brunswick at the adult ed and uh, got my captain's license and kept it until I turned 70. <laughs> and then I let that go. And said it was uh, just just a little bit too much to go down to Boston and go through that hassle again. Yeah, so, pretty rigorous uh, program. That's yeah, to get, yeah. So get I said, six pack license. But, yeah, or tied water addendum is what. Yeah. So for, yeah, tell tell us what that's about, Tom, because I didn't realize it was difficult. I'm not a sea captain. Um, yeah, I'm not either anymore. <laughs> Neither are you, because we let it lapse. Really? Oh, so it, it runs out after a while. Uh, if you don't yes, every five years, I think. Every five years, you, you had to renew. Right. Unless you let it lapse, and then you had to be dust. Yeah. But I'll nice. tell you, it's, it wasn't easy. I mean, I spent more time with a computer going through all these questions, some of which were about rules of the road on the Mississippi River. Right. 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 Come on. Really? Yeah. It was I couldn't it wait was, to forget most of that stuff. It was a tough program. And it's like any big exam, you cram for it, yeah. you sit for it, and then you promptly forget 99% yeah. of it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I love it. It was uh, right. But uh, so you got this. So you, now you were legal. Yeah. You got your, your uh, Coast Guard license. Yeah. You had your main guy's license and your Tidewater done. So you had all of those boxes checked. I was, I was up to, and ready to go. And when I started guiding, and, and obviously the uh, my introduction to the f- fly fishing school at Beans helped me get a little bit of a base of clients there. I, I made some friends, and they hired me, and one thing led to another, and pretty soon I was guiding five days a week, and I made a pledge to my wife that I wasn't going to guide seven days a week. So I did Monday through Friday, took the weekends off, and I didn't do tour days like some of the guys were doing, and that got them into trouble, and I wasn't going to go that route. So Monday through Friday, up at 2.30 in the morning, on the river, 4.30 at 5 o'clock, fish for seven hours, and head home, take a nap, get the boat cleaned up, ready for the next day. But you upgraded from the canoe. By that time, I was I was guiding out of a 17-foot lund, mm-hmm. and uh, from there I went to a 19-foot Mako, and from there I went to a 23-foot Jones Brothers, oh, center console. Which is a very high-end boat. Yeah. Okay. Were you uh, both spin fishing, eel fishing, and fly fishing, or mm-hmm. you, no, were you married to fly fishing? Or? Never... Never bait. Good. We never used bait of any kind. Good. Never kept a fish. Good. Um, mostly fly fishing, but occasionally we would have three people on the boat. Um, and in that case, I could have one person in, on the casting deck with a fly rod, and I could have two guys in the stern with spinning rods, and they could swap around. So mostly fly fishing, but not exclusively. But that, that Jones Brothers boat allowed me to have six fully rigged fly rods and six fully rigged spinning rods ready to go. And uh, it was just a wonderful, wonderful boat. One of my clients bought that boat for me. He has it moored out by uh, Birch Island uh, in my Mere Point. And 
he's now ready. In fact, he has a brand new one on order. Wow. He, he likes it so much. Yeah. So he, he he's going to get a brand new one. As soon as it's ready, he'll have it out there at Birch <laughs> So he bought your old boat from you? Yep. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Great hope. I mean, that Jones brother, the Parker was not fished out of a park. Oh, yeah. Years, but Similar I, boat. Uh, yeah, then I, I yeah. traded up to a 20-foot uh, Cape Fisherman, Jones brother. Great haul. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Uh, you and I shared in Hoffice for a number of years <laughs> in the lower Kennebec. Oh, yeah. And, and I look back on that and many things that I've been blessed with doing in my life. I think one of my favorite things was guiding in the lower Kennebec. It just never got old. Every day was new and exciting. Loved the people, loved the fishing. Um, but like any job, it's good, it's good, and it's bad. Can you share a little bit about some of the, your good days, bad days, any memories you have of well, saltwater guiding? Well, the beauty of that lower Kennebec, to me at least, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, that first trip down the river in the morning, you never knew what was going to happen. I, I ran across deer, moose, and bear swimming across that river before you could really get a good look at, at full light. Um, and oftentimes you'd, you'd get into blitzes of fish early in the morning. I felt like I was going fishing. I mean, I was that excited about just being there, and uh, it gets your heart going. And, you know, we had unbelievable days. I had a man and a woman that had just got married. The two of them caught 154 stripers on one tide. Wow. And it was insane, right? And we had many, many days during that period where we would catch over 100 striped bats striped bass. Wow. I had one man and his son that wanted to break the record, but they were slowed down because the fish were a little bit bigger than and they, they couldn't get them in fast. No, that's you not. Know. So <laughs> right. Uh-huh. But on the other hand, I had a man and his son and uh, that that particular trip we were we were on the Cousins River up by the Muddy Rudder restaurant. Yep. And we were catching uh, they were catching fish so fast that the, the father said, I've had enough. He wanted to leave, and the son was not real happy about that. That's the first time I ever had a full-day trip that they had me booked for that was cut short to a half-day trip because the fishing was too good. That's amazing. That is a <laughs> high-class problem. Yeah. Now, there must be a shoe on the other foot. I, I am proud to say that I never had a dangerous experience guiding. Uh, never once did I feel that my clients were in danger. Now, I've had embarrassing things, you know, running out of fuel once, motor problems, having to be towed in, like probably every guide has oh, yeah. at one point or another, but never. But I'll tell you, there was one one thing that happened to me that kept me up all night. I had a a customer from New Jersey who had been a a guest as from one of my other clients. He had come as a guest of this other fellow. And he had apparently had enjoyed himself because he wanted to hire me and bring a guest of his own. So he did. And I picked him up at the Comfort Inn in Brunswick about 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, his friend was from Harpswell, met us there. And so we headed down the river. 
And it was a one of those days, you, Tom, you know what it's like when the wind is blowing out of the north. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of get a feel that it's not going to be a great day of fishing. Well, it wasn't a great day of fishing, but the guest caught 22 stripers on a fly. And I put this other fellow in a position with the same fly, switched him back and forth from the bow to the stern so he could present, and he caught three stripers. So we got a total of 25 stripers on flies, 22 for the guest, three for the guy that hired me. So I took the guys back to the Comfort Inn afterwards. The man paid me in cash, thanked me. That night I got an email. This is when emails were first becoming introduced. I got an email saying he could catch three Twinkies without a guide. And he wanted his money back. I would have said it's not the error, it's the Indian. Yeah. Well, I thought it was a joke at first. And then I read it and I reread it. And I emailed him back, asked him if he was serious. He was absolutely serious. And so I contacted the friend and I said, Are you aware what your what your friend has just done? And he said, No, what do you mean? So I explained it to him. I mean, I felt like I was being blackmailed. He said that he was going to put my name on a list of guides that he, that you should stay away from. Whoa. Yeah. And so, I mean, I was in a pissing contest, and I said, it, it's probably not worth it. So rather than do what my heart was saying is, is get into a contest with this guy, I said, I sent him a check for his half of the trip. And I and in the in the letter with the check I said if your friend is as unhappy as you are, I'll send him his money too. Wow. And that was the end of it. Yeah. But I was so upset by that cuz I had done what I the best I could do. You, you can only do so much as a guide. Right. And I thought under the conditions that was a pretty That's, good day. Twenty-five stripers on a fly, yeah. not evenly distributed. But I tell you, I worked my ass off to try to make it even. Yeah, but it just didn't didn't quite work out that way. Those are nightmares. Luckily, we don't have a lot of them. No, no, that was the only one that. And I mean, literally, I couldn't sleep. So the next day, I had a trip with Charlie Ruff, a dentist from Waterville. I remember Charlie. He started with me when I was in my lund, and he'd been with me forever. And Charlie, nicest man. And so I had to vent. So it's Charlie and one of his dentist friends from Waterville. And I said, Charlie, you're not going to believe what happened to me yesterday. And I said, I didn't get any sleep last night. And I told him the story. And I expected that he would give me a little bit of compassion. He said, well, I'm glad to know about your money-back guarantee. <laughs> really? Well, yeah. Those are your bean roots showing up. He went yeah. through the, Charlie went through the bean fly fishing school. He did. That's right. That's yeah, right. right. So you got to stand behind. I, the first year I did it, uh, I guided, I offered, I, I said, well, money-back guarantee, if you believe in your goods and services, guarantee them 100%. And then I realized, like Mike said, it's not the... Uh, <laughs> uh, arrow it's the indian i had someone bring a rod back to me at llb once i said you know this rod doesn't cast and i said well you know i got pens that can't spell right and they walk away scratching their heads and i said i couldn't guarantee things that are out 
of my control. Right. You know, and so, but I, I know you feel, you, you know, I think that's the yardstick as guides we use to measure success is the number of fish brought to the boat, how are their tails wagging, tails wagging at the end of the day, are your clients happy and so forth. And to know that somebody's left your boat and they weren't satisfied, that would haunt me. Yeah, well, it did. Yeah, right. It right. did. But so I mean, like Ch- Charlie had his tongue uh, firmly in his cheek. Yeah, but, yeah, right, right. But nevertheless, well, what, it, it was... I was expecting a little bit of comfort there, right? That, so, instead of a little joke. But so, so you want to be a guide, yeah. eh? Oh my gosh, well, that's that's a great story. We all have. I had just a quick one to share. I had a, a day. We were going down the East Outlet with two guys who will remain nameless, but they were brothers and good friends of mine as well. I know them, and they, yeah, and they, the leaves were in the river. It was the day that the leaves were dropping, and the fish were just not going to play right. at all. I mean, like we hadn't caught a fish all morning, right? And I said, guys, we are at a place right now where we can end this trip and there's no money involved. We can right. take out right here. Right. And they insisted that we keep going. Yeah. What happened 20 minutes later? A 23-inch landlocked salmon. It's always too soon. So I was ready to call it. 23 inches. 23, that's a good fish. You right? better believe yeah. it. And Especially for these. Uh, yeah, well, no, they're coming back up there, Harvey. Yeah, but but yeah, we've been catching some big, big, big fish up there. So we talked about saltwater guiding quite a bit, but you're also really into freshwater guiding. The library of photographs behind you have a lot of smallmouth bass mm-hmm. and, and largemouth bass. Well, to be honest with you, I think that guiding and being successful as a bass guide is tougher than as a striper guide. I think there's more variables that you can control and the fish are are people think that bass are easy to catch. Well, that isn't always true at all. So I, I love bass fishing, and the reason I got into it was the mouth of the Songo River, where I loved catching a land, uh, landlocked salmon in the spring, became more and more popular. Mm-hmm. And the, pretty soon it was so popular that I didn't really want to compete with all the fishermen there. Mm-hmm. So I started seeking out these remote spots. And every year I would pick out a, a, a pond on a topographic map and I'm going to try it. A lot of them were busts, but I found a couple of gems along the way. And um, this story is probably, to me, the most exciting thing I ever happened to me as a guide. But the two fellows that I was guiding who were saltwater customers of mine had heard me talking about freshwater bass fishing they said well let's give it a try so they had never done it so put in at my secret spot and we headed up into the into the pond and i was explaining how to cast these things called spinner baits and the first guy hooked probably a nine pound largemouth on a spinner bait the fish jumped shook and the bait came out and he just said well and i i think i pooped myself a little bit yeah i think you did i would have yeah and i knew it was a monster so we we kept going into a different part of the pond and caught some pickerel and they started getting antsy about not catching anything recently they they forgot all about that massive livestock that they lost earlier in the trip I says, hang on, we're getting to this rock pile that holds the alpha females. I says, if you do what I say, I think you'll have a chance to catch one here. So we had 
you're going to appreciate this. We, I had a banjo minnow, the, the uh, four-and-a-half-inch one, four-inch one, tied on each one of their spinning rods. And I said, all right, now, according to my little depth finder, we're getting into this boulder field. So you cast right over there and let it, let it die. Just let it fall. You're going to let it die. Let it fall. And so I said, now, count to 10. Well, the first guy he throws out, he counts about three, and he's cranking it in fast. It's not, we got to let it go. So he, he did exactly what I told him. All of a sudden, his line is going off to the side. I said, now, crank as fast as you can. The line came tight. He set the hook. Nine and a half pound largemouth. Wow. The picture is up there. Yeah. Yep. And I'm saying, oh, oh my God. That's a fantastic. So you, put had, your, you got the fish in the net. He had no clue what he had just landed. Four minutes later, the other guy throws his banjo minnow out, lets it die. His line goes sideways. He sets 10 pound. Oh I said, now you guys have no clue what you just did. Yeah. You just caught over 19 pounds of bass in four minutes. Wow. I don't think it's ever been done in Maine. Yeah, not with two fish. No, in four minutes? Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? That is a great story. And neither one of them really appreciated that. Right. Right? Well, years go by. I'm out here weeding my front lawn, and one of the guys that caught the 10-pounder, he drives by and he stops the car. He says, Hob, do you have a picture of that fish I caught? He says, somebody told me I should have a carving made done of it. So I gave him Gene Barr's address and so forth, and so he now has a beautiful carving of the yeah. of that 10-pound bass. Wow, wow. But I'll tell you, of all the, the hours I put in bass fishing, I didn't think I would ever live long enough to hold a 10-pound bass in Maine. Yeah, right. In my hands. I never caught one that big. I've caught them nine, but I've never caught a 10 myself. Right. So Banjo Minnow was actually designed in Maine by uh, Wayne Hawkmeyer, who was one of the founding fathers of the whitewater rafting mm -hmm. industry, owned Northern Outdoors, but was a very avid smallmouth bass fisherman. Right. And he created it. And, of course, if you remember the, the – uh, infomercials he used to oh. have on the weekends and he'd sell the banjo minnow oh yeah but i found harvey don't you can just use a, a fluke and, and a, oh, yeah. a gamagatsu hook and you can change the weights around you can you can replicate it pretty easily you can and yeah. it had its weaknesses the banjo did yes so what were they well the original ones they had a corkscrew that went uh -huh. into the plastic and many times you'd make a cast and it would come off this corkscrew and to this day, I hate seeing plastic go into the water right, right. and stay there. I hate that. Um, then he redesigned it, and it made it better, but still not perfect. But if you did it right, it was effective. Yeah, and the line was, you got to let it die. You got to let it die. Yeah. Yeah. Don't move it. But I'll Wayne tell was you. a heck of a promoter because we all know that line. Yeah, you got to let it die. Let it die. Let I can't tell die. you how many people oh. have imitated Wayne Hawkmeyer on my boat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, for sure. It's <laughs> saying sure. that, yeah. yeah. You know, there's another, there's another story that I don't think you know that we know about that we want to ask you about, and that has to do with hooking an ATV in Waterville. Uh, I, I suspect that story has been exaggerated, but we were Brian Noyes, 
and a friend of his, we were drifting down from Sydney for stripers. And uh, it was kind of a, kind of a flood condition situation. And Brian or his friend went over, cast over to his shore and came tight. And lo and behold, there it was, a hook and a handlebar of an ATV that was <laughs> under the water. Did you pull it out? <laughs> you went after it. Yeah. I have I have a picture of the of the ATV under the water. Yeah. But, uh, Did you have Gene Barr do a commemorative carving <laughs> of the ATV? That or? would have been quite a challenge for Gene. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> he just put out a beautiful carving of a rainbow trout. I just saw he, he released it. Uh, yeah, he's a genius. He is a gene. Is a genius. I need to get him on the podcast. He is a creative genius, and he's a fine musician. Even. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, one day on the on the way back from a fishing trip up to my spot up in in uh, Bridgeton. Uh, we stopped at uh, Gary's Pub to have an adult beverage and a hamburger, and it was the open mic night, and there was Gene Barr with a harmonica and a guitar, and he was ready to do some singing. Really? Yep. I didn't know, know that either, because pretty strong introvert. Uh, that's interesting. Um, maybe, you know, we when we're not working, we're not guiding, and we get to fish, we get to pick who we go with. That's not always the case when we guide. We've all had some wonderful fishing buddies down through the years. And I want you to share a little bit with us about one of yours, Tim Hill. Well, Tim was an absolute dear, dear friend of mine. We had shared a lot in common uh, politically, um, interest-wise, values-wise. And he and I, we've, at, we were like brothers at, at – uh, for most of our adult lives, I met Tim when he was a teacher at Falmouth High School, uh, when I was a teacher there as well. Um, so Tim and I did a lot of uh, fishing together and a lot of talking about a lot of things, family and a lot of things that didn't relate to fishing at all. But Tim um, was in the Navy, exposed to Agent Orange, and as a result of that, um became afflicted with leukemia. And then he had another kind of cancer. And then he had the third kind of cancer. He had three different kinds of cancers all at once. Things were going really south for him. And he was losing weight and everything. And so one, one day, it was a fall day, I said, Tim, let's go fishing. Get your mind off of this. So the water was low. I got him into my canoe. He was fairly weak at the time. I got him into my canoe and I paddled up through some shallow areas and got him out onto the pond and the short story is he caught the largest bass of his life and whenever somebody on my boat catches a trophy bass I, I fill out all the paperwork and send it in for the one that didn't get away club so he got his patch in the mail and all that stuff and I included a little note about him when I sent in for the patch and and they contacted me from the main sportsman magazine wanted me to write a little note about the story about uh, Tim and that bass and so I do have a copy of that article that they published in the, in the magazine about him but that was uh, the last time I fished with him the last time he caught a fish mm. 
and it was a fish of a lifetime. Wow. And he did it with you. And he yeah. did it with me, and I'll never special forget Special stuff. Very, very special. Yeah. And Tim, he and I, we, we fished out in British Columbia even together, where Tim caught a, a really beautiful uh, steelhead. Very memorable trip on that. Uh, I could go on and on about that. But the fact is we fished from coast to coast together, and it was a wonderful friendship, and I miss him dearly. I still am in contact with his wife, Adora, and uh, occasionally we, when my wife and I go out to dinner, she will come with us, and so we still value her her friendship. But boy, I, I certainly miss Tim. He sounds like he was one of your best friends. Yeah. Yeah, dear friend. Yeah. Right. We don't. I don't. I don't fish alone anymore. No, I don't either. First thing I ask when someone invites me, go, who's going to be there? Yeah. That's really what matters to me more than no doubt about anything it. Anything else? Who else is going to be there? That's that's an amazing yeah. story. At, at this point in my life, both for golf and for fishing, it's more about the people than it's the absolutely the actually it's the experience itself. So right. the the yeah. people make the difference more so now than ever before. Right. It's a tired cliche, but Thoreau put it best. He says, you know, I fished my whole life before I realized it wasn't fish I was after. Yeah. And, uh, but, yeah, it's, that's good. Who were the Kennebago boys? The Kennebago boys are, in fact, there are seven of us left. Tim was one of them. We have a plaque. I have a, I have a picture of Tim holding the plaque with all nine of us on that plaque when he was dying he was but we were united as retired teachers we started fishing together in the late 60s and we would go every spring and every fall to a little cabin adjacent to steep bank pool on the Kennebago river and that's how it all started and we used to sleep in a bunkhouse that was uh, built in the 1800s that has now fallen down and and, and taken away. Uh, we met all kinds of insects and rodents and so forth in that in that cabin. We had a cook cabin and then we had the bunkhouse outside. But those were we've lost. Uh, one of the fellows had a stroke when he was driving and, and went off the road and died. Another one of our fellow Kennebago boys had a massive heart attack. He passed away. So uh, there's seven of us left, and we still have a spring trip, and we still have a fall trip, but now we, we gather at one of our friend's camps on Moosefoot McGonick, and he has running water. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and well, a shower comfort. No Wi Fi. Shower. No Wi Fi. No Wi Fi. No. <laughs> well, I was talking with my friend Bill Pierce this weekend, and he wanted to say hello. He remembers you uh, and the guys going up to the uh, Smooth Ledge Pool and oh, yeah. the, the little cabin across the way there. And, oh, yeah. Uh, Bill ran the museum yeah. at the Aquasic. Oh, boy. And, and, but, so yeah. the, the one, my one favorite story about that cabin, one spring, I was not able to go at the regular time with the rest of the guys, and for I let them know that I was not going to be able to be there. Well, I got went to the library at Falmouth High School, and I got a 33 and a third RPM record, Songs of the Humpback Whale. <laughs> and I got a little tape recorder, and I recorded those sounds. 
<laughs> and I got another tape recorder to record the responses of the guys in the cabin. So I showed up around midnight and snuck in next to the cabin. I put the little tape recorder on the windowsill, and then I went back behind some bushes, and I started the Songs of the Humpback Whale, and I just sat there and listened. Nobody wanted to acknowledge that something outside was happening. Nobody wanted to get out of their sleeping bags. What was the dialogue? Little by little, noises started to emanate from the inside of the cabin. The first comment was, I think some townies are torturing some of the some boys in the woods. <laughs> Bob McCulley, who was almost seven feet tall, used to play center for St. Bonaventure. He says, I don't know what it is, but I want to take it out with my Swiss Army knife. <laughs> Everybody had some comment about it, and I have that tape still oh my in gosh. Saved oh, that's here. a great story. <laughs> that just confirms with everything I've always believed about fishing camp, and that is fishing camp is where men go to become boys. No, no, no. You know what? Yeah. You just uh, it doesn't matter how old you are. You're a boy when you go. To oh camp. yeah. But the 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 ironic thing was, while I was waiting for all of them to finally come out and see what was going on, a rabbit jumped right next to me and scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I said, I yelled in. I said, "Boys, you've been had!" And they all came up, gave me a lot of grief. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but wow, we'll never forget that one. One question I wanted to ask: You've spent more time on main water than anyone that I've ever known, and um, you know, fishing and with friends and family, and just you know, doing the stuff we all love to do. What, looking back on it now, from where you're at. What do you take away from that? What's your takeaway, Harv? From well, you, the takeaway is the people. I mean, there was a time when I was younger that I would want to go fishing alone. I have no interest in doing that anymore. Mm. So the people, that, that's my takeaway. The greatest friends I have are people that I've met on the water somewhere and many, many of them, you know. Right. Well, there's something about fishing that, it's competitive, but it's not competitive. It brings people together. Yeah. Uh, and unless you have the wrong mindset, people will stick with fishing for a lifetime. Uh, I think they want to share. They want to teach. You've done a ton of that, Harvey. Yeah. Uh, it's why I always wanted to have you on the podcast. I knew that you'd be reluctant to do it because you don't like to blow your own horn, which is really why a lot of people admire you, and I do as well. I know Tom does. Amen. Um, and it really means a lot that you took the opportunity to sit down with us and tell some of your stories, and, and we really appreciate that. Yeah. And it's very kind of you to say that. Yeah, I think in the words of a, a main guide, and I think that's appropriate because we're all guides sitting here. Harvey, Maven, you have left the woodpile higher than you found it. You know, and that's probably the highest praise that I could give any person I know. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, that's for sure. Don't make me cry on a podcast. <laughs> uh, it's been an absolute joy to be able to Here's some of these stories, some old, some new, but I feel uh, much, much richer for this. I always learn something about oh, yeah. people I didn't know. Oh, this has been wonderful. Thank you, Ari. Thanks, Maeve. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion, and thank you for listening to Flyline Podcast. 
a new Flyline podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays, so be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then, this is Michael Jones, and we invite you to visit the blog section of our website to enjoy photos and contributions from our guests and experience all of our episodes at flylinepodcast.com.